join me in a word of prayer as we begin. God, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word in scripture. Lord, we thank you for your mercy. Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts to the mercy you and love you bestowed upon us in this call to repentance. We pray, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so for I think for me, as I was studying this week, today's gospel was a reminder of both the challenge, but also eventually the gift of preaching from the lectionary. Some of you know that um, we preachers, we don't pick the texts that we read. We have a lectionary that we follow. It's actually a, a three-year cycle that outlines so that we, in that amount of time over those three years, the majority of the Bible is read in church and preached on. So, and you know, sometimes you get passages like this where out of all the things in Luke, right, this is the, the passage from the lectionary. This is probably not what I would have picked, but as I was wrestling with it, I was at, part of what I was asking myself was, why this passage and why now? We're in the season of Lent. As I got thinking about it, part of our posture during the season of Lent is a posture of repentance. And that's kind of where the brain got going. I was praying and thinking, right, Jesus twice, it kind of stands out in the, in the passage, right? Jesus says to the crowd, repent or perish. And as I was thinking and praying this week, what I realized is there's actually a connection between this terrible tragedy that talk that, you know, the gospel passage opens up with in this kind of like obscure parable about this fig tree that's not bearing fruit. So if you, you'll stick with me, I'm going to try to pull those two together and see if there's something. Because as I was praying and studying, I found a, a different angle on repentance than the one I think we commonly think about. But um, before we, we start with that, I want to tell you a little story about something that happened with my family yesterday. Uh, Hillary, AJ, and I, we were out walking in the woods on a trail near our house where we live. And as we were walking, you know, walking with a toddler, there are all kinds of things to see and all that. So I'd found a lizard that was hanging out in this big palm frond. So I was, I was pointing it out to AJ and we were looking at it. And then all of a sudden I hear Hillary like, like audible gasp scream. And I was like, what, what's going on? And she said, and I said, what, what, like, what's happening? And she said, look at those snakes. I was like, oh boy, <laughs> right? So, you know, a couple feet behind this big palm branch that we were looking on, not one, not two, three snakes that have just, that have found this little spot in the sun on this branch, and they're like perched there. You know, they're just doing their snake thing, right? But the way that they were like all hanging out together, it looked like it was one snake with three heads, right? Like, <laughs> like the stuff of of nightmares. And I know some of you, like, right, some of you, I know, and I do youth ministry, I've seen this happen. Some of you, the instinct right would be immediately to pick the snake up and, and play with it. That was not the, the Ishii instinct. We <laughs> scooped up AJ, and we quickly turned around and walked back from whence we, we came. And so, as I was thinking some more that evening and getting ready to preach, I actually thought, you know what? That's kind of like a helpful way of thinking about repentance or a common way that repentance is portrayed, right? A lot of times we hear about repentance as 
turning around. Another way I've heard it said is, right, is, is doing a 180. Well, we definitely did a 180, right? Were you not listening to the Corinthians passage where it talked about people being destroyed by serpents, right? That's what, that's what we did, right? We were, we were getting out of danger, right? And, and so I think sometimes in church, we talk about repentance, right, in, in this kind of way, right? You've been living your life one way, and then you find God, and then you've discovered that the way that you've been living your life up until that point has been fraught with sin and with danger. And then you change, right, because you've seen a better way. And I think this definition is true, but I think it's also a little bit incomplete. And this, this is where the parable helped me to fill in some gaps around repentance. Here's what I mean by that, and I want to clarify this, right? Repentance is absolutely, certainly removing of sin from one's life right? That, that is, by definition, what repentance is. But, and I think this is where that us turning around made me realize this, right? When we're turning around, right, that turning around is in repentance is only important if you are turning in God's direction, right? It's possible to be going one way and to hit a roadblock, to hit challenges in life, and to just go a different direction, but it still may not be the Lord's direction. And so this idea of embracing the way of God, right, it's more than just removing sin from our lives, right? Re true repentance involves taking on godliness, right? It's actively embracing the kingdom of God on a regular basis, And this is, this is where the connection with the, with the parable was helpful for me, right? This parable is really about the fruitfulness or the lack of fruitfulness that's coming out of this fig tree. And so here's, here's, my, sentence, here's my sermon summary in one sentence. The goal or the telos, if you will, to use the fancy term that I'm going to come back to at the end of this, this sermon, right? The trajectory of, repent, of repentance is actually fruitfulness right? Turning away from sin is involved in that process, but is not ultimately only turning away from sin. I think we can miss this bigger picture if we think that repentance is only about the elimination of sin in our lives so that we become, quote-unquote, better people. Um, Dallas Willard, who's a great Christian thinker and um, has written a lot of books about spirituality, he talks about this version as the gospel of sin management, right? God doesn't want us to just manage the sin in our lives, right? That's not good news. God wants us to be freed for that. And why is he freeing us from sin? He's freed us from sin because he has bigger things planned for us in the life of God than we would have ever imagined on our own. And we have to see, right, that it's the sin in our lives that holds us back from that bigger vision of fruitfulness that God might have for us. So let's, let's get into the details of this text. Because again, right, there's a lot of weird stuff in there that I think might be a little distracting. So I want to look at what, what Jesus has to say here and see how that illuminates what I'm talking about. So Jesus is addressing a crowd, right? And some of them... They want Jesus' hot take on the latest tragedy that's happened in their area. Did you catch this, right? It's actually kind of gruesome, like even how it's described, right? 
They want to know about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with the sacrifices. What does that mean? Well, essentially, right, Pilate, this is the same Pilate, right, that condemns Jesus to death or as part of that process, right, he was a, he was a Roman leader. He represented Rome. So Pilate, it seems, had killed a bunch of Galileans in the midst of them sacrificing to God, right? That's where you get this really vivid and gruesome mingling of their blood together. And we're not sure why this is brought up, right? We don't know what the intention of the the people who raised this concern was about. Um, Something to know about the ancient world at the time that was kind of just part of how people understood culture there was a lot of people who thought that anytime something bad happened to you, whether it was a tragedy like this, or maybe if you had like a long-standing illness or something of that nature, they thought that this was God punishing you for sin. So Jesus does a really interesting thing. He actually doesn't talk about Pilate. He talks about those that died. And Jesus makes it abundantly clear that those who died in these tragic circumstances, it was not a result of the sin in their life, right? This was not divine punishment, so to speak. And how does Jesus illustrate that? Well, he actually talks about another tragic thing that had happened that others probably would have heard about, right? He talks about how there was a a tower near Jerusalem that fell and killed 18 other people. And so what's what's this about? I think the, the point, like I mentioned, right, the point of this is not to say that those who died were somehow worse sinners. I think what it does, right, is it, it kind of reminds us of the, the fragile state of our existence, right, of our vulnerableness as human beings, right? Who knows, a tower could fall and kill you, all these kinds of things. It made me think of what we say on Ash Wednesday, right, when ashes are being put on our foreheads. Remember, you are dust, and to dust you shall return, right? That, that comes from something that not only Job says in the book of Job, but if we had continued the psalm reading two verses more, it talks about in Psalm 103, verse 14, how God remembers that we're dust, right? That's part of our human experience is that we're limited, we're finite, we're vulnerable and fragile in the world. And I think this discussion about mortality, it also is a reminder of both our dependence and our interdependence, right? We depend on God and we are interconnected as human beings towards one another when we're confronted with these terrible, tragic things. And so Jesus does that, I think, to help frame the urgency of repentance in our lives, right? That we don't, we're not in charge of our own destiny that there is always time to come back to God, to change our actions, to see things from the way that God sees them. And so this is what I want us to think about a little bit more this morning. I think that repentance is really an invitation to join up with God in the work that he's doing in the world, right? To say, let go of the ways that we want to do things, but can we then embrace God's way. I think that's what repentance is really about, right? And sometimes the way that we need to do that is by putting off the sin or those ways in our lives that are contrary to the way of God. And during the season of Lent, 
right? The, we don't just do Lent once in our lives, right? Lent is something that happens every year in the wisdom of the church because it's important for us to have space in our lives to pray, right? To fast, to give alms towards those who are in need, and to ask ourselves before the Lord, right? Are there places in my life where I'm out of step with God, right? Are there places I need to repent, to draw actually closer to God, right? Because that's the goal of all this Lenten stuff, is actually a closer and deeper relationship with God and the way that God is working in the world. Again, right, the goal or the telos of this repentance is not that we would simply stop sinning, but that we would more fully embrace the kind of life that God offers us that our sin so often hinders. All right, so here's the connection to fruitfulness. In this parable of the barren fig tree, right, again, we see this conversation about, like, there's an urgency involved, right? What's happening in this parable? You've got an a, um, owner of a vineyard who is said, right, he's got this fig tree that for three years has not produced any fruit. And so he's had it, right? Tear it out of the ground, we'll, we'll, put, we'll plant something new. And, what, and we have this really interesting character in the gardener or the, the vine dresser who wants to act with more patience, right? With more mercy towards this barren fig tree. I actually think that we see God's character in this vine dresser, Right? This is, again, mirrored in Psalm 103. Because what is, the, what is the vine dresser trying to do? The vine dresser is trying to get this fig tree to bear fruit. And not just by giving it more time, right? But the vine dresser is caring for this fig tree, right? He's turning over more soil, planting manure, trying to do everything possible so that this fig tree would be able to bear fruit. And so I was trying to think about and looking through the news for an illustration of this idea that repentance should ultimately be about fruitfulness in our lives. And I found some interesting stories, you know, human interest type things. But as I was thinking about it, I actually realized that there's a story in Luke's gospel that is the perfect illustration of how repentance is actually about God-bearing fruitfulness in our lives. And that story is the story of Zacchaeus, right? So some of us, right, we may, might need a little bit of a refresher on the story of Zacchaeus, right? We have, maybe haven't thought about Zacchaeus a lot since Sunday school. We sang about Zacchaeus being a, a wee little man, right, who climbed up the sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. So Zacchaeus is a tax collector. That's very important in the story, because tax collectors, some of you may know this, some of you may not, but tax collectors in the ancient Roman world, especially if they were a Jewish tax collector like Zacchaeus was, they were not well thought of in society, right? The Roman Empire put taxes on those who were, were under their rule, and so these tax collectors were in charge of carrying out the, you know, receiving the taxes. And so not only has Zacchaeus betrayed his people, right, and he's working for the bad guy for Rome, in addition to that, tax collectors were notorious for being greedy, right? They would take more off the top 
than what the taxes that were owed. And who could stop them, right? They were working for Rome. So Zacchaeus was, was kind of infamous for his greed. And he was probably not very well liked in his town. But it's interesting, right? There's something about Jesus that despite Zacchaeus being this notorious sinner, kind of an outcast in his society, that he's drawn to something about Jesus. He wants to hear him speak. He wants to hear him teach. He wants to hear him talk about the kingdom of God. And so the other thing you need to know about Zacchaeus is that he's short. So in a crowd, right, he was probably having to stand on the outskirts of the crowd anyway because he wasn't well-liked. I know what this is like when I have ever been to any general admission concert. I have to find a very particular spot between the tall people, right? I don't have the advantage of just seeing over the crowd. So Zacchaeus, right, to get a better view and to be able to hear better, and probably because no one really wants him there to begin with, what does he do? He climbs up this tree. And as Jesus is teaching and talking and sharing about the kingdom of God, he notices Zacchaeus. How could you not notice Zacchaeus, right, if you were Jesus? There's this guy hanging out in a tree. And he tells Jesus, hey, Jesus, like Zacchaeus, come down, and I don't want you to just get down out of that tree. I'm actually going to hang out with you later. Go home, get your house ready for a visit. We're going to share a meal together. And that's what they do. And here's the beautiful piece about repentance and fruitfulness that I see in the story. In the midst of their conversation, something happens in Zacchaeus' heart. He realizes the wrong that he has done, right? And he repents. He says sorry. He probably promises to not do it again. But it, right, the story doesn't end there. It doesn't end with, with Zacchaeus just turning from sin. What happens next in the story, some of you know. Zacchaeus promises to pay back multiple times what he stole from others. So we have this beautiful picture of repentance here because not only has Zacchaeus been reconciled to God, right? But in practicing true repentance of really embracing the way of God's kingdom, he said, you know what? I've stolen, I've cheated, I've exploited people and I'm gonna do them right. And so in the midst of him being reconciled to God, there's space for him to be reconciled to his neighbor, especially neighbors who he has wronged. I find this story fascinating. And to me, this is really what repentance is all about. So in closing, I'm going to share a quote from the book that we've been reading, right? We've been talking about this book by Tish Harrison Warren. I don't know if we've mentioned this enough, but Tish is not only a wonderful writer, she Right, she has booked, she writes for the New York Times, but she's also a priest in our Anglican tradition. So we're, we're, we're excited about what Tish has to share with the world. But this is what Tish says in her book, Prayer in the Night, on page 66. She says, we are made to share a common life of work and creativity. And once all things are redeemed, we will not suddenly become supermen and superwomen who are autonomous and self-sustaining. We will never not be needy. We will never not need God in one another. Our telos, again, that's why I mentioned that word in the beginning, right? She says, our telos is community, not self-sufficiency. It's a feast, a life together. And this is why I think 
that the goal or the telos of repentance is fruitfulness, right? Fruitfulness in God's world, it draws us not only into deeper relationship with God, but it should draw us back into reconciled and healed relationships with our neighbors and with all of creation as well, right? It takes us away from sinful, self-focused living towards this bigger vision that God wants us to embrace. I think Zacchaeus shows us the kind of change that repentance can and should continually have in our lives. I pray that we would be the kind of people who can bear the fruits of repentance as God guides us together. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.